5: Lives at risk as blistering heat scorches southern Europe. Michael Gove rejects M&S Oxford Street demolition in Watershed Moment for Retrofit. Architects issue an open letter to
1: design journalists over the climate crisis.
2: And how climate crisis could force a billion
5: from their homes worldwide. How did this end up happening? Well, Merlin, what's this all about? What's this all about? What's this all about? Climate stories are now seizing headlines like never before. The growing awareness of this problem is clear propelled by the tireless efforts of activists and underscored by the intensifying barrage of global heatwaves, droughts, crop failures and unpredictable weather. It has become increasingly apparent that we need to adapt now or face dire consequences. Yet as we face this existential threat, conversations about how we navigate through these uncharted waters are proving more explosive than ever. Over the past year, the Lundown team have delved into how climate pressures are reshaping our built environment and testing our ability to adapt to rapidly changing demands. My name is Poppy Waring, I produce The Lundown, and this week I will be bringing you a special episode revisiting some of the top climate stories we've covered over the past year. Welcome to The Lundown. Searing heat waves, raging wildfires, crop failures, unprecedented ocean temperatures, flash floods, droughts, catastrophic monsoons and freezing storms. All these have played out across the world over the past year. 2023 stands as an emphatic wake-up call, especially for Europe, thrust onto the front line of substantial climate disasters for the first time on this scale. Sicily shattered records with scorching temperatures hitting 47 degrees, whilst Greece wrestled with evacuating tens of thousands of residents and tourists as flames engulfed islands and even threatened the capital. Meanwhile, the northern reaches of Europe and the Balkans were hammered by fierce thunder and hailstorms, wreaking havoc on buildings and sweeping away cars. This wasn't entirely unpredicted, as back in March, the world's leading climate scientists delivered their final warning on climate change. Act now, or it's too late. At the time, Antonio Guterres, the UN Secretary-General, said, This report is a clarion call to massively fast-track climate efforts by every country and every sector and on every time frame. Our world needs climate action on all fronts, everything, everywhere, all at once. Despite decades of warnings like this, governments around the world have been slow to react. Here is Merlin Fulcher commenting on some of the green policies which have been repealed, scrapped or brushed onto the carpet by UK government over the past decade.
2: (sighs) I mean, I guess there was a really interesting statistic this morning um, that I saw on uh, on Twitter, and it was to do, someone called Simon Evans, and they were saying the number of UK homes getting loft or cavity wall insulation um, has fallen forty two percent and is now ninety eight percent below levels seen in twenty twelve. Um, also, that another tweet by Simon Evans saying that we are now nine point eight billion pounds poorer because we did not adopt the energy efficiency improvements that were supposed to be put into new housing uh, but were scrapped by the coalition government uh, who described it as green crap okay cast your mind back to 2008 2007 before the financial crash Energy efficiency was a big issue. Everybody, everything that was being said right now was being said back then. Okay, we had a financial crash and that was used as a pretext to dump a whole load of really important regulations. For example, here in the UK, one of them was called Code for Sustainable Homes. It would have given us zero carbon homes. Um, It was scrapped. It was scrapped because it was seen as like regulation that was holding back business. Oh, yeah, that same business that's given us a society with no growth, with no productivity. Right. This was the stuff that could have solved that crisis and solved the energy crisis and it's just kicked out because we don't really have the kind of uh, political debate or narrative which allows us to do sensible things um i still think we can make big changes now but those changes are not about like me or you putting our potato peelings in a composter like it needs to come from the top like it you know it, it has to come from there like that is it like that is the fact. And. Um, What's concerning is that it is not happening here in an advanced uh, democratic society. Like, and it, in fact, it's it's gone the opposite way, and we're seeing a populist backlash against uh, climate science. Um, it's certainly not happening in authoritarian societies either, and it's not happening from industrial society, from the companies. It's not happening from the tech companies, the so-called saviors. You know, so like, where is it going to ha- Where is it going to come from? That is very troubling. Well, I mean, it's an issue that obviously um, has seen a lot of coverage, especially with the various climate protests from Just Stop Oil and XR, Extinction Rebellion. And um, in response to, to these sort of protests, the government has implemented quite draconian anti-protest laws, which incidentally has seen the UK downgraded in civic in the Civic Freedoms Index. And it now ranks alongside countries like South Africa, Poland and Hungary. Merlin, how confident are you that the government has listened not only to calls from its citizens, but also from the world's top scientists the increase in popular uh, sentiment and in protest about climate crisis has made a huge difference to it being really high up the political agenda. It cannot be ignored because so many people in society feel so strongly about this. cannot downplay the importance of protest enough because, as we we're saying, this change has to come from governments. It has to come from uh, companies. Um, and like, if it can't happen here in a you know, so-called advanced democratic country, where is it going to happen? It needs to happen here. Uh, in this We need to have a space where um, the correct pressure can be put onto government to make the right decisions. However, uh, yeah, we are seeing a really uh, a hard-handed response which is taking away civil liberties, which is basically specifically targeting climate protesters, it seems, and just saying, like, we're having none of this.
5: As hopes of keeping global heating to below 1.5 degrees wither just like Joster Boyle's dreams of not plundering the North Sea, scientists have begun looking ahead to what 2.7 degrees of warming the temperature rise we're currently on track to reach might have in store for us. A groundbreaking study we covered back in May predicted that unprecedented temperatures and extreme weather events will forcibly displace a staggering 2 billion people from the climate niche in which humanity can flourish. The study painted a grim picture of a future facing countries like India and Nigeria, which are expected to endure average temperatures of 29 degrees Celsius or higher, potentially pushing one billion individuals to migrate to cooler climates. Needless to say, migration is a hugely contentious topic in UK politics right now. But Peter Apps, the journalist perhaps best known for his unflinching coverage of the Grenfell disaster, outlined how this could be seen as potentially a valuable opportunity for the UK
6: the reductions that we need to in order to hit a 1.5 degree target are um sort of re- retreating with every day that goes by and it's just another sign that missing that target would have serious consequences which will be felt years down the line within our lifetimes i mean i think one of the things that that stands out to me from that is that a lot of the a lot of the talk about what we need to do about climate change and um the sort of future that we're heading towards involve either things that we need to do to cut emissions and that's that's obviously really important and things that we need to do to kind of adapt our societies to a hotter world so you know higher flood barriers and you know other other forms of adaptation but it's very rarely talked about how how does the world equitably cope with the larger amount of migration that is is, is going to, even in a 1.5 degree scenario, I think you said 400 million people potentially on the move. And an honest conversation globally about, well, where do these people go? They need to come to more temperate climates. You know, one of the big future problems in this country is an ageing population. So there are ways in which you could see younger people wanting to move here as a good thing. (laughs) Um, But it doesn't seem like that that it doesn't feature very much in the, in the sort of global political conversation about climate change is how do we allow migration to happen in a way that is as good as it possibly can be and is ideal for people presumably not to leave their home because they're being forced out by um, extreme heat but if they're going to have to go how do we make that work without... You know, people dying, crossing the Mediterranean in dinghies. Um, And, yeah, it's it's a conversation the world doesn't want to have. But if it doesn't, then it's, it's just going to find it has to deal with it as a crisis. I
2: mean, certainly with this study, it's like even the, the minimum case scenario appears to be 400 million people having to move. And it's not just, you know, that's not a simple process of people getting on a train and going to another place. I mean, this is in the context of enormous environmental destruction, all kinds of disasters. Um, is you know, like Imagine like the scenes you're seeing in Ukraine on the television, you know, this, this kind of level of upheaval and flooding and destruction. I mean, it's quite an extreme scenario that people will have to live through if if this comes to bear, or if it comes to bear in a way that that we societies are not able to respond to in a kind of proactive way. Um, Certainly, we've had so many major things happen, which we've been told would happen and we haven't planned for. We just talked about the crumbling hospitals. We know housing provision has never met anticipated population growth in this country. Yeah, as a journalist specialising in housing, what are your thoughts on how the world could respond to a scenario involving these hundreds of millions of people being displaced and needing rehousing? Um, are we talking futuristic cities up in the highlands of Scotland, like halfway up a mountain? And you know, what, what is, I mean, is, is, there an, is, there, is there an architectural solution or is, or is that a kind of fantasy escapism and people should be yeah, focusing on doing the right thing now as much as they can?
6: It is possible to build large amounts of comfortable housing very fast. The technology to do that exists. You know, I've I've, I've sometimes been sceptical of modular housing, but it's, it tends to be when people kind of build thirty or forty storey tower blocks and, and 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 don't necessarily ask difficult questions about fire safety. But to, to to build, you could build a a comfortable modular city pretty fast. I mean, the the questions are not really. It's like with all the questions about climate change, really. And it's not really, do we have the means to deal with this? It's do we have the will to deal with it? Do we are we going to do do right by these people when they arrive at international borders? And then are we going to what's going to happen politically if we say, well, look. 400 million people are on the move globally. We, we, one million of those people want to live in the UK, and we're going to build a city for them uh, somewhere in the Midlands. Um, or not just to build a city for them, but we're going to we're going to up we're going to we're going to up our provision of housing in order to accommodate them because the the, the world is no longer uh, hospitable enough for them to to live where they 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 were born. You're going to run into political problems. You know, we we you can see that. You can already see it. It's effectively what is already happening. It's already the world we live in. And so, yeah, I mean, so the the questions are never, can we deal with it? Like, the questions are, do we want to deal with it? And and are we willing to? And do we have political systems that are willing to?
5: Soaring temperatures present one of the biggest challenges to the future of our urban settings, especially in temperate climates like the UK, where our ageing housing stock was never intended to cope with the record-breaking temperatures we've been experiencing in recent years. On our sister show, Talking Landscape, we spoke to Professor Debbie Bartlett, a landscape architect and ecologist who worked on the Cool Towns project, who spoke about why designing spaces to cope with heat stress is so
3: important. Well, I think we've all been aware of a climate change for some time, and lots of work has gone into um, dealing with floods. Everyone knows about flood mitigation. Um, heat and heat waves, although people talk about global warming, the actual effect of heat waves has not really been taken seriously. And when we started um, the Cool Towns project, which would be oh, six, seven years ago now, people laughed. They were, Why are you thinking about heat and thermal comfort in Northern Europe? And we said, well, because it's going to be an increasing problem, and we need to be thinking about it now, and thinking about what the consequences are. Because um, global warming, climate change, however you want to refer to it, is actually extreme weather events. So um, it's, if you like, the the sort of lost sibling of the of the climate change scenario. So working with my colleagues um, in. Dutch universities, Um, we were working with um, local authorities, we were looking at the European word is municipalities, cities, what can be done on a city scale to try to build in resilience to heat waves, while at the same time thinking about flooding and cold weather in the winter.
5: This idea of of thermal comfort, um, why is it so important when it comes to that urban design um, not only from a sustainability point of view but from an inclusivity point of view would you say?
3: Well in hot weather the people who suffer most are the elderly, the very young, children are much nearer the ground so get hotter, can't control their temperature so well and of course um, anyone who's disabled or quite frankly poor the rich just put in air conditioning, thereby making the whole situation worse for everybody, and also um, don't have the ability to get out of the city, which is hotter than the surrounding countryside, to go somewhere cooler. So it is very much an inclusion issue, and and we were looking at trying to get local decision makers which means really elected members and councils to look at their city look at where is most likely to get hot and what can be done about it because of the effect on the local economy if people are too hot to go out it's unpleasant walking around they won't spend money in the shops They won't go out to the, you know, the restaurants, etc. And there's quite a lot of work being done on the effect of temperature on economy.
5: It's not just heat and drought the urban realm has to adapt to. Just last week, communities in northern England were bombarded by Storm Antony, which dumped a month's worth of rain in a single day, causing widespread flooding urban settings are at an increased risk of flooding due to the lack of permeable surfaces and places for water to drain to. However, new proposals put forward by the government back in January would make sustainable drainage systems resembling urban wetlands mandatory for new developments. Here's Finn Harper explaining a bit more about this story.
1: This is a genuinely good news story, I think, uh, or at least it will be if it's implemented properly. Um So a lot of cities are like hard surfaces, right? Pavements, roads, car parks. And when rain falls on those hard surfaces, it doesn't have anywhere to go. And so we build drains and the water gets channeled into the drain and, and, you know, flushed away into the river or whatever. Um, That's sort of okay, But then what happens if there's more rain than that drain system can handle? You get flooding, Right. And flooding, as we've seen, is it going to be an increasing problem as the climate gets wetter, gets windier, gets gets kind of scarier. Um, And so a really clever alternative is to say, OK, well, you know, what if we found some ways of like cutting some holes into all that hard surface? What if we made some punctures into that, uh, just down into the clay or down into the earth? Uh, then the water, rather than flowing into the drain and overwhelming the system, could flow into the earth and sort of soak away, soak away into the ground. And that's essentially what a suds system is. It's a way of channeling water, not into a pipe, but into the ground. And the the ways that you you do that are kind of, you know, there's, there's various ways. Sometimes you have quite a small pocket where it can drain into the ground, but then you have quite a large tank which can add extra capacity and mean that it can soak away quite slowly. Uh, there's a really good scheme in um, in Cambridge. Stanton Williams designed this kind of big new bit of housing on the edge of Cambridge, where they have a, a kind of mini wetland that runs right through the middle of this whole housing estate uh, and ends in a kind of little swampy lake, the ornamental swampy lake. And so the water from the whole housing estate gets Collected, channeled through these kind of fountains and um, and waterways, and ends up in this lake. So, if there is a kind of heavy rainfall, um, it all soaks away there. So, there's various ways to achieve it, but ultimately, this this is about kind of cutting little holes in our really hard landscape of London to allow water to soak away into the earth. And then, if you're gonna cut a hole, you can plant it with trees. You can put little wetlands in. You can grow reeds and flowers. And as soon as you have access. To the earth again, once you've cut through a piece of road or a piece of pavement, there's all sorts of kind of greening and biodiversity benefits that you can squeeze into the sud system as well.
5: UK buildings are responsible for one fifth of the nation's greenhouse gas emissions. And historical buildings, which make up nearly a quarter of all homes, account for a significant portion. Research indicates that improving the energy efficiency of old buildings could not only contribute to the economy and create new jobs, but could also reduce carbon emissions from buildings by 5% each year and make homes warmer and cheaper to run. Seems like a no-brainer. The government's Great British Insulation Scheme, which aims to insulate 300,000 homes a year for three years, came under scrutiny earlier this year after industry calculations published in The Guardian indicated it would take 190 years to upgrade the efficiency of the UK's 19 million homes in need of insulation and 300 years to meet the government's own targets to reduce fuel poverty in the UK alone. This was something Finn posed to Claire Benny, founder and director of the consultancy Municipal on the show. Here's a snippet of their conversation.
1: Um, Claire, what is all this about? There has never been a better case for insulating homes. Um, Energy independence from despotic fossil fuel exporting countries, protection from these wild summer heat waves that we're getting, cheaper bills in the winter. It seems like a really obvious thing to do. How has the government got their energy policy so wrong? Who is benefiting from the slowdown in insulation upgrades, if anyone?
4: Uh, Absolutely nobody. Um, I mean, just thinking about the Tories are planning 4 billion over 10 years, roughly 3.8 billion, I think it is. And I think they said there's another 12 sitting around in previous announcements. So at best, it's 16 billion over 10 years. Labour, 60 billion uh, quid over 10 years and 2 million uh, homes sorted in the first year. Um, Two thirds of homes need some help Um, It's interesting to think about how much that costs You get a real variety of It costs £12,000 to sort a home out Or it costs £50,000 Which is what a recent uh, London Council's report said Mm. I think sometimes it costs a lot more than that It's incredibly fiddly If you take a Georgian home Or a 60s home with loads of concrete twists and turns It can cost a lot to get to even EPCC And actually EPCC is quite bad so I've mentally, for, for the purposes of when I think about this, put £100,000 a home aside in my head. And guess what? That's £200 billion in London. So we really do need that fund from those people with the property wealth. Um, but yes, around uh, 400000 public homes need
1: it sorted uh, in London and that has to be the priority. Obviously it's going to cost a lot to upgrade all these homes and I agree with you that um, some of the estimates we see are, are lowball figures, Um, but spending money on highly skilled work, improving the energy efficiency of our homes, not only saves money in the reasonably short term because of these super high bills, but could be a really good economic driver. You know, Britain is stumbling along economically. It does feel like we need a kind of epic nationwide project to kind of reboot our economy around. And what could be better than adapting our built environment to be fit for um, an increasingly severe climate emergency?
4: I think that's right. I think Labour's calculated 450,000 new jobs could be created this way. And that has to have a cost-benefit knock-on, doesn't it? If you give someone a job, they can spend more money, et cetera, et cetera. The, the real difficulty with energy is that it's the resident that benefits not that that's a bad mm-hmm. thing just that they're the one making the saving and so therefore how do you actually fund the works when it's somebody so the money doesn't kind of flow quite correctly I think there's Energie sprong, isn't there? is that the Dutch method which says your bill's going to stay the same sorry but um, we're going to take the the rest of it that you now don't owe and use it to fund the works
5: The UK's addiction to the wrecking ball is trashing cultural heritage, polluting the environment and crushing communities. In London alone, over 160 council and housing association estates have been demolished since 1997, resulted in a loss of around 55,000 homes and the displacement of an estimated 131,000 people. Finn spoke to Denine Rowe from the Town and Country Planning Association after Southwark Council announced it was scrapping the planned refurbishment of Bermondsey's iconic Maydew House Tower in favour of demolition. Here's what she said.
0: I think it would take someone with a very uh, particular um, mindset to rejoice at the idea of demolition, especially such sort of beautiful old buildings that feel like a part of the landscape. Like the the Ellsbury Estate, I think, is a really good example of that. I mean, I grew up, I grew up seeing that building all the time, mm. um, and it not being there now in the area, sort of looking quite different, is something that sort of hits me personally, and a whole load of other people in the area who live there, built communities there, who work there. It's a really emotive issue. Something that I found really interesting when I was looking at this was how much, even with something like this, the lack of funding in, in local government affects it. So even with Meiju House, on the outside of it, you look at it and you think, how how could this have possibly happened? Up until, I think, maybe 2021, the, the architects were on board with sort of changing and working with what was already there. Most residents, I'm sure, would have been okay with that. But again, one of the big things about it was cost. So the refurb cost in 2019 was 42.1 million. From 2019 to then 2021, that rose to 69.6 million just to do the refurb. That didn't include the refit costs. So sadly, I think really sadly, it became a financial cost where it actually worked out cheaper to demolish the costs. Um, I think there's also another point that, again, I think a lot of people, especially outside of the policy world, might not know is that the VAT, I think you don't get charged VAT for the demolition and rebuild.
1: Yeah, exactly. Building anything from scratch is exempt from all VAT, but refurbishing or upgrading is not exempt from VAT. So it effectively costs 20% more to refurbish something than to demolish something.
0: Exactly, which... which it's just maddening.
1: The costs is a, a really interesting issue. And I know that some people have kind of questioned some of the costs that have yeah. been published and what you know, how, how kind of trustworthy they are. Certainly if we look at comparable economies overseas, they're a very cost effective refurbishment. Options, yes, and it, you know it can't just be Britain where refurbishment is so expensive. No, but it, I mean, like zooming in on on Southwark, for example, you, you know, you talked about the Aylesbury Estate, which is a um, an estate that could clearly be upgraded. A lot of the buildings there, rather than uh, demolished, and yet the local authority is seems to be pushing ahead with demolition plans for now despite having declared a climate emergency and this is yes. the bit that i'm sort of interested in it's like even if it is more expensive to refurbish something if that's lower impact on the environment and you acknowledge that we're living in a climate emergency isn't that worth the extra cost
0: in an ideal world ab- absolutely i think especially with councils like Southwark and Lambeth and Camden, who have come up with really exciting and just flat out interesting um, ideas on how to tackle climate change. In an ideal world, that strategy would underline everything that you do, and you would just be able to deliver everything with that at the forefront. But the successive Cuts, funding cuts to local governments that persist even now mean that many people who are in those positions now are having to think finance money first. What are the cheaper options? What are the quicker options? Whether that is partnering with a developer that maybe people in the community might not want, or what we're talking about now with demolishing properties, It, it means that people are having to make decisions finance rather than people first and most people wouldn't rejoice in having to make decisions that way but if we don't fund local governments then that is what is going to keep on happening i think a lot of the other um, countries who are able to work in sort of other ways have a lot more support for local governments and, and and also trust in them making more decisions and we don't have that here
5: Perhaps the most high-profile demolition story we covered this year was the controversial plans to demolish and redevelop Marks & Spencer's flagship, Oxford Street Store. Just the other week, Housing Secretary Michael Goh vetoed these plans, overruling the planning inspector's verdict on the grounds that the scheme conflicted with policies on heritage and design, and he also specifically highlighted the embodied carbon impact and waste involved in the plan. Here's Merlin's take on this whole saga.
2: In in architectural media, in, in, in the wider media, you do have these stories that come along every now and again, and it's about the conservation of a building, a building threatened with redevelopment. And on the one side, you have, like, a beautiful building. You know, imagine, like, famously in New York, you had the New York Penn, St- Penn Station, you know, this beautiful building uh, that then becomes this big cause that loads of people rally around to save it from demolition. And what often ends up happening in the state of New York, uh, is that building gets demolished, okay, and it gets replaced with, you know, a massive concert venue or something like that. Um, now, what's really, really, really interesting about this MS one is that this is a building which has united quite a broad segment of um, these campaign groups and the media and other people. You had people like the 20th Century Society, Save Britain's Heritage, you also had the Architects Journal, uh, all of the architecture media, and also plus like you know, comment pieces in, in the national papers, Evening Standard. So, so it was broad, like it was there was like a real public upswelling against this proposal, uh, the proposal, obviously, to demolish the sort of Art Deco corner MS on Oxford Street that probably no one shops in anymore uh, with uh, an MS with some offices on top of it. I mean, that's a success by the campaigners. Okay. But then there's another way of looking at it. You know, this is a decision by Michael Gove. What do we know about Michael Gove? I mean, we were discussing not so long ago on the show uh, the Tulip in the City of London. So this was like a giant observation tower, ridiculously controversial, right next to uh, the Gherkin designed by the same architect, Norman Foster. It split opinion. Some people wanted it. A lot of people didn't. And Michael Gove uh, weighed in, in this powerful position in government, was able to arbitrate on it. And he he said, no, uh, embodied carbon doesn't make sense. And that was also what's interesting about this story, um, that you did have that strong environmental angle on embodied carbon, which hadn't always been so powerfully articulated in previous conservation battles. I mean, this was really retrofit and embodied carbon, which is, you know, the cost of demolishing something that already stands and then rebuilding again. Construction is insanely carbon intensive, just to remind everyone. And, I mean, I would just say on our last show, we were discussing the controversies around the Department for levelling up, giving back £1.9 that it hadn't spent building affordable housing. If you're almost being super cynical, you could say, you know, here's Michael Gove taking the news agenda to a, a space which potentially is more receptive in the public opinion. There is a general election coming up next year. If the Conservative Party lose that election, somebody will need to lead the Conservative Party in opposition. Could this be building up kind of credentials of being, a breath of fresh air, a vote winner, uh, a populist, uh, somebody who's in tune with green and conservation and heritage concerns? I don't know.
5: With the ever-growing housing crisis and our enormous deficit in much-needed social housing, building more is unavoidable. However, is it really possible to build green? So many of the key materials used in construction are hugely environmentally destructive both in their extraction, the chemical processes that go into creating them from raw materials, and cement and steel alone account for 13.5% of global CO2 emissions annually. In recent years, we have seen more products, experiences and even buildings labelled as net zero, thanks to the rise of carbon credit schemes. To be considered net zero, buildings must offset any carbon released during construction and operation of the building. We covered a compelling investigation led by Cambridge University, which found that many of these offsetting schemes can be completely ineffective, with one study reporting more than 90% of offsets failed to cut CO2. An investigation into one company, Vera, the world leader in the $2 billion voluntary offsets market, found that almost none of its rainforest credits account to genuine carbon reductions with some even suspected of making global heating worse. Merlin discussed this with architect Katie Marks back in February. The idea of carbon credits as
7: a principal method of meeting net zero targets is really quite a cynical approach to sustainable design. Fundamentally, it's saying, let's carry on with business as usual um, and outsource the carbon question to someone else. Let someone else deal with it. So as a principal means of offsetting carbon it's just fundamentally flawed the way that if you're going to use carbon credits because because it is a really really difficult thing to to make a net zero carbon building at the moment in, in our current climate but if we make every step every effort to reduce the carbon in our buildings that is the obvious thing to do you build less you build with less carbon such that if there's a little bit left over that you really can't do anything but to offset if you're in a really built up urban environment, for example, then you may need or you may want to do some carbon offsetting to really just feel confident that you've got to completely net zero. But if that's your principal means of offsetting or if it's used to such an extent that it's even just a major means of offsetting within your whole carbon strategy, it's just flawed and wrong and it's not sustainable at all for all the reasons that you've just said
2: so you effectively saying that carbon offsetting only really makes sense on something which is already inherently green already inherently that's um, right um, ecologically sensitive and climate adjusted anything anything that you come across that's claiming to be net zero and is like a big shivering new office building or involve the demolition of an existing housing state that is, we should just instinctively assume that, that that's very difficult for that to actually be legit. I think legit.
7: It, it's really interesting that you use the word instinct because I think that in design terms, in architecture terms, that's often what's missing, um, that we need as as designers, as a society actually, to build up carbon instincts. And that applies really, really strongly in, in architecture. So just as an example... A net zero carbon approach needs to stem from a commitment to reduce the embodied carbon in the design first and foremost. So you lose, use less carbon to begin with and then the whole carbon credit offsetting issue becomes far less critical in, in retaining the carbon balance. And also that's because carbon calculations are really complex and the different ways, the different parameters that designers use to measure embodied carbon can vary greatly. So you can get cradle to gate, which is, you know, from the point of manufacture of of materials through to the completion of the construction of the building. You can consider cradle to grave, which is including the whole life use and the demolition and the carbon associated with that. And then you can look at cradle to cradle, which is what happens when those materials are demolished and turned into something else. Um, and the way in which you therefore consider embodied carbon, you can you can see that it's vastly different. And one of the big problems with that is that you can get really, really skewed figures coming out of the end of it. So, for example, we are building at the moment or we're designing a new visitor centre for the National Trust. The National Trust have uh, an aim to be net zero carbon um, by 2030. So we have gone about designing a building that is almost entirely biodegradable. It's made, it's built of straw and timber using lime crete floors, no plastics, no concrete in the foundations, recycled blown glass and cork, insulation, this kind of thing. And yet, when we went through the standard embodied carbon calculation, it doesn't come out automatically particularly great and that's because a lot of embodied carbon calculations don't consider what's called carbon sequestration that timber holds carbon and providing timber is sustainably sourced then actually you're capturing more and more carbon by planting more trees and using timber but that doesn't come through in the calculation and so a lot of there's a whole carbon industry that's measuring embodied carbon that's actually favouring continuing business as usual because if you look at only a particular proportion of the life of a building i.e. cradle to grave and you don't consider the sequestered carbon then actually concrete with
5: some cement alternatives looks pretty good. These are just a select few of the many climate stories we've covered over the past year If you've enjoyed these stories and would like to hear more, the links to the full episodes featured are in the show notes, so do check them out. We really hope you've enjoyed this special episode and stay tuned for a regular episode of The Lundown next week.
1: You've been listening to The Lundown, a podcast from Open City made in association with the 20th Century Society and the London Society. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've covered, we recommend subscribing to The Architects Journal, which reports on all these issues and many more. To get early ad-free access to The London and to support the important educational work of Open City, please become a friend of the charity today. The link is in the show notes. The London is produced by Poppy Waring and hosted by Merlin Fulcher, Finn Harper, Cyber Chatter and Fran Williams. The editor is Merlin Fulcher. Our theme music is by Chris Zabriskie. Open City is dedicated to making cities more open, accessible and equitable.